0: Hello, this is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service with reports
1: and analysis from across the world. The latest news seven days a week. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. This is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service. I'm Janat Jalil and in the early hours of Sunday, April the 5th, these are our main stories. Recorded fatalities from coronavirus in Spain and Italy suggest that the outbreak may be close to its peak in both countries. But New York State records its biggest one-day jump in coronavirus deaths so far. And Interpol warns that cyber criminals are targeting hospitals battling COVID-19.
2: The ransomware appears to be spreading primarily via emails, often falsely claiming to contain information or advice regarding the coronavirus from a government agency. Also in this podcast.
3: I quickly wrote my number on a piece of paper, taped it on my drone. I ran up to the roof and flew my drone across the street, landed it on her roof. She got my number and texted me.
1: Love in the time of coronavirus, one man's novel way of getting a date despite the lockdown. Over 800 deaths in a day in Spain, the deadliest 24 hours yet in Britain and in New York state. Nearly 700 more lives lost in Italy. The headlines highlight the grim reality of the coronavirus pandemic. The number of deaths worldwide has now passed 60,000. But amid the grief felt by families around the world, there are glimmers of hope, especially here in Europe. Spain has reported its lowest number of deaths in a week. But the Prime Minister, Pedro Sanchez, says he still intends to extend the current lockdown by another two weeks.
4: Comprendo lo difícil que resulta prolongar aún dos semanas más
5: este esfuerzo y este sacrificio. I know how difficult it is to prolong the efforts and sacrifice for another two weeks. I understand. These are very difficult days for all of us. Days which test our patience, isolating ourselves in our own homes. For many, these are the most difficult days of our lives. Son los días más difíciles de nuestra vida.
1: In the UK, though there's been a record number of deaths, officials say they're slightly below scientific expectations. And in Italy, which has suffered more deaths than any other country, the numbers dying because of the virus have continued their downward trend. But the authorities there also fear this could give people a false sense of security. Many are now asking the government to relax the lockdown restrictions. From Rome, Jean McKenzie reports.
0: A slice of normal. A local market reopening for the first weekend since Italy's lockdown began, albeit with some caveats. We have one customer at a time. We also have an employee who controls who gets in and out. Do you think this is safe? Yes, we're being careful about everything. We're doing our best. There are very few people. uh, Everything is uh, under control, so it's okay. What difference does it make having the market open again? It seems like, uh, you know, normal. But things are not normal. Italy may have reached the peak of its epidemic, but the country is still in strict lockdown. As the infections plateau and even start to decrease and the weather keeps improving, it's going to be a real challenge for authorities to convince people to stay indoors and play the long game. Because the lockdown is working, they say. Just look to the north, where finally the hospitals like San Rafael are starting to see progress.
5: The situation for the first time after weeks is not worsening anymore. We are still working 12 or 15 hours per day following them. They are serious, they are critically ill, but uh, we can now cope
2: with it. It is a relief.
0: From a rooftop in Rome, this serenade has become a nightly affair. People leave their homes to soak it in just for a few minutes, while police look the other way. The sound of hope returning.
1: Jean McKenzie reporting. Well, if the situation in Europe shows some signs it may be easing, the United States still looks locked on a desperate downward spiral. According to Johns Hopkins University, which has been tracking the spread of the virus, the US has now suffered 300,000 cases of COVID-19 and more than 8,000 deaths. New York State alone suffered its biggest one-day jump in coronavirus deaths so far on Saturday, reporting 630 new deaths and bringing the statewide total to just over 3,500. This was the State Governor, Andrew Cuomo.
6: Part of me would like to be at the apex and just let's do it, but there's part of me that says it's good that we're not at the apex because we're not yet ready for the apex either. We're not yet ready for the high
1: point. Speaking at his daily briefing in Washington, President Trump said there would be, in his words, a lot of death over the next two weeks, but claimed the country is buying 180 million protective masks and is deploying military personnel to the worst-hit states. In many parts of the U.S., the strain on medical staff has become almost unbearable. Dr. Joseph Underwood is chair of emergency medicine at Hackensack University Medical Center in New Jersey.
7: You know, initially it's a little scary, but our people are trained for this. And I think we pretty quickly fell into a routine where people were focused and just driven by the task at hand and the work they needed to do. There's a lot of fear and a lot of people are concerned about what we're confronted with on a global scale. And I think when you're confronted with being in that position for the first couple of times, you reflect on a lot of things, your family, your friends. But again, I mean, we're trained to do this. This is what we're here for. And so you focus on the work, you get it done. And then every single time you go in, it gets easier and easier and it becomes more and more routine. Very early in the pandemic, when it hit us here in the East, you know, I had a patient who was simply scared and and frightened. And uh, I ended up giving her her a hug. But ordinarily, um, when we're taking care of non-COVID patients in a non-COVID universe, we wouldn't think twice about that. And so I think in us, there's fear in our patients, there's fear. And then there's this added physical barrier that is kind of getting in the way to some extent and and a functional impediment. I do think too, though, you know, we're now in month two of this soundly in month two, folks have kind of gotten over that and have been able to refocus on true empathy on truly connecting with our patients on a personal level. And I think we're over a lot of that and realizing that at the end of the day, again, it's a human being in the stretcher, who needs our care and to some extent needs to be shown love.
1: Dr. Joseph Underwood of the Hackensack Medical Center in New Jersey. As if the unprecedented healthcare challenges weren't enough, the international policing agency Interpol has warned that cybercriminals are targeting hospitals at the forefront of the coronavirus response. It says its cybercrime threat team has detected a significant increase in attempted ransomware attacks on key organisations tackling the pandemic. Interpol Secretary General Jürgen Stock has been talking to my colleague Paul Henley.
2: The global pandemic of COVID-19 is of course a serious health issue, but it, it is also a significant um, cybersecurity risk. We saw that criminals are swiftly taking advantage of these crises. Cyber criminals now continuing targeting critical healthcare institutions with ransomware is another example for this ruthless and insidious crime where cyber criminals try to exploit the current global crisis where is this happening? Actually, it's uh, not a completely new phenomenon. We have seen attacks against hospitals, against uh, law enforcement agencies, against city halls uh, already during the last couple of years. But it's now an opportunity for criminals, again, to exploit a difficult situation specifically for the health service. And actually, it's taking place all over the world. Uh, No region. And uh, of course, Interpol's member countries, 194 are all around the world. And there is no region around the world where hospitals and other health services should not take care that their systems cannot be attacked by hackers. And what exactly are hackers demanding? I mean, actually, what we see at this point is that the ransomware um, appears to be spreading primarily via emails, often falsely claiming to contain information or advice regarding the coronavirus from a government agency or even the World Health Organization, which encourages the recipient to click on an infected link or attachment. And then it's about blocking the systems. This is the way they try to get the encryption software onto the devices, on computers, on IT networks. It's about asking for r- ransom or maybe even threatening stealing any patient documentations, files. Uh, But it's primarily to make money. It could be deadly, right? It could be deadly, of course. We had a very recent example in the Czech Republic where the Brno University Hospital was attacked. Consequence was that urgent surgical intervention had to be postponed. New acute patients having to be rerouted to other hospitals. And actually, the whole entire IT network during the incident had to be shut down. And of course, it's not only that maybe the access to critical information concerning patients is blocked. It could have um, potentially have uh, even a, a deadly consequence if this information is not available for proper treatment.
1: The Secretary General of Interpol, Jürgen Stock. The shutters are coming down on shops and businesses across the globe. Millions of jobs have been lost. Many more remain at risk. But in one of the poorest places in the world, one man is seeing the pandemic as both a business opportunity and a chance to help out. Our Middle East correspondent Tom Bateman went to the West Bank town of Hebron to meet him.
5: The machines still run like clockwork in Amjad Zaria's workshop. He spent his life making shoes in Hebron, but now it is face masks that his workers stitch, sew and staple.
6: The idea came to us due to the poor state of the economy, and there were no jobs for workers.
5: Amjad's business was passed down from his great-grandfather. Hebron was once famed for its high-quality shoes, until cheaper imports from China flooded the market. Amjad's workshop shut down last year, and then came the coronavirus crisis. Much of the West Bank is locked down, trade paralysed and a battered Palestinian economy in even more trouble.
6: So we decided to run the factory to make masks and give job opportunities to our workers who were previously making shoes.
5: The blue and white fabric is folded and pressed and packed into boxes, ready for dispatch. There are no shoes in sight now. The new product is worn by the workers themselves. Mouths and noses covered, they sit and stitch And, you know, so many stores and factories are having to close because of the lockdown. You've found a way now to give people jobs for them to have work. How do you feel about that?
6: It is a very great feeling when you are able to create 50 jobs in a matter of days. In two or three days for 40 or 50 people who were struggling due to the current situation. There were no jobs or income for the Palestinian citizens. This is very beautiful, whether it's for me or for my employees who have found an alternative income. The first obstacle I faced was in the raw material, the fabric for the mask, when you need to bend and iron it because these materials are medical materials and they cannot withstand high temperatures, which was the first hard step for me to overcome.
5: He's not the only one to have had the idea. Some workshops in the West Bank have tried to produce face masks and been shut down by officials. Amjad's have been certified by the governing Palestinian authority. His uncle, Adi al-Sharabati, is a pharmacist. Amjad and I headed to the Ministry of Health
6: and we asked the officials about the specifications for the masks. From that day, we started our journey. We started working and producing. It was hard at that start, but we applied ourselves and we thank God today we have reached a stage that we produce around 10,000 masks per day.
5: The Palestinian police in Hebron warn a passing driver if you leave the city, you might not get back in. Amid the shutdown, many police are wearing masks made in Amjad's factory. They and government workers, along with some healthcare centres, have bought them. Experts say masks should only be worn by those caring for patients or people with symptoms. But around the world, they've been appearing more and more in public. Doctors say Amjad's provide a basic barrier. With little demand for shoes at the moment, he says he's ready to keep producing them. In the West Bank, like elsewhere, no one knows just how long the lockdown will last.
1: Tom Bateman. Still to come, India's wildlife reclaims
8: the streets. Where she hears early morning traffic most days, now she wakes up to song. Across
1: the world, normal politics has been put on hold. In Britain, for example, there is, for now, a sober determination across the political divides to see the country through the coronavirus crisis. It's against this backdrop that the main opposition party, the Labour Party, has elected a new leader with none of the usual fanfare. The result of the vote came in a simple tweet from the party's account and the winner, Keir Starmer, unveiled a speech pre-recorded in front of his living room blinds. After months of deliberation, the party picked the 57-year-old lawyer and political moderate to succeed Jeremy Corbyn. Here's what Keir Starmer had to say.
9: Under my leadership, we will engage constructively with the government, not opposition for opposition's sake, not scoring party political points, or making impossible demands, but with the courage to support where that's the right thing to do. But we will test the arguments that are put forward. We will shine a torch on critical issues. And where we see mistakes, or faltering government, or things not happening as quickly as they should, we'll challenge that and call that out. Our purpose when we do that is the same as the government's to save lives and to protect our country. So, who is
1: Keir Starmer and what are his politics? Patrick Maguire is a political correspondent for the New Statesman magazine. He's been talking to Paul Henley.
9: He, he hasn't been in politics for a very long time. He was only elected to Parliament for the first time in 2015, and he spent his entire career, most of his adult life, as a human rights lawyer and then was the UK's chief prosecutor for five years between 2008 and 2013. He was always considered a liberal Left-winger, very interested in human rights and the environment and trade unions, until now has been the party's most senior voice on Brexit and has been responsible for moving the party from a position where it was quite confused. It was in a position of strategic ambiguity on Brexit to a more uh, overtly remain position. He takes this job at a time when the Labour Party is very weak, having catastrophically lost an election in the last few months, and also when the news is dominated by one thing, and we all know what that is. It's not politics. Yes, exactly. And part of Keir Starmer's entire pitch to the Labour membership was that he he would be a more effective opposition leader. Now, obviously, the the coronavirus pandemic means, you know, conventional politics has gone out the window and and so too have the conventional politics of opposition. So, Starmer will now be trying to present himself as a sort of constructive foil to Boris Johnson in a way that Jeremy Corbyn, who is obviously instinctively and sort of unshakably anti-Tory, you know, he'd never be seen working with a Conservative. Keir Starmer will be all about providing constructive opposition to Boris Johnson's government while also proving that he is perhaps more grown up. He's said to have talked about the possibility of some kind of government of national unity in the midst of the corona crisis. Is there any chance that Boris Johnson and the Conservative government would let him in? In some respects, it's in the interest of the Conservative Party to have as many people around the table if this crisis goes on for a long time because it means they will be able to share the blame for any economic hardship, indeed Any personal hardship, thousands of families across the UK will be suffering. And obviously, it is an ongoing crisis, and they have to take more drastic measures in terms of law and order and the economy. They will want them to have cross-party consensus. Now, whether Keir Starmer will be willing to do that is another question entirely. The Labour Party is haunted by the memory of its first Prime Minister, Ramsay MacDonald, who did that in the 1920s and has been vilified as a traitor ever since. Clement Attlee, the most popular Labour leader in history, did it during the war. But I suppose Keir Starmer will make a judgment call as to how great the crisis is, but he's been very careful not to rule it out and that's the core of his pitch to Labour members, that he's constructive and that he's prepared to take difficult decisions in the, in the national interest. He doesn't seem to have a lot to lose at the moment. No, he, he, he doesn't and that's precisely because he has won an overwhelming mandate from Labour members now and so now he has a mandate to turn to face the country and he's got five years to present himself as a credible alternative Prime Minister. Um, he was hoping to have more time to warm up, but he has to go into that immediately now and indeed, yeah, he has nothing to this, this crisis is the first test of his judgment, his character and his politics. So there is no time like the present for Keir Starmer.
1: Patrick Maguire of The New Statesman. In India, there has been a striking increase in sightings of wild animals during the country's lockdown as they wander into what would normally be busy urban streets. Similar scenes have been observed in other countries. Here in the UK, a herd of wild goats recently took up residence in a small town in Wales. But in India, the creatures have been rather more exotic. They've included elephants, leopards and even a tiger. I got more details from our reporter Sanjay
8: Dasgupta. Throughout India, normally very busy cities, like for instance, the city of Chandigarh in northern India, chock a block with traffic on a normal weekday. And a couple of days ago, a leopard in the residential district of Sector 5 roaming the streets. Residents saw it, called in the wildlife people. They were successful in tranquilizing it, and sending it back to the sanctuary where it had come from. Another leopard elsewhere in India, in the town of Jorhat in Assam in the northeast, wasn't so lucky. Again, a crowd gathered, disregarding completely the lockdown that is in force, and the police came. A policeman shot dead the unfortunate animal before the wildlife experts could arrive. In the town of philibit one of the most picturesque parts of northern India, a tiger mauled two people to death in a nearby village. Before again, it was tranquilized, this time sent back to a local zoo. Cases like this, an elephant in the Himalayan town of Doiwala near Dehradun, strolling the empty streets, suddenly confronted with a milk vendor who was out on duty, face to face with the elephant. They both stop dead. The milkman decamps promptly, leaving behind his pail of milk. Scenes like this, everywhere in India.
1: And we've seen a a few videos on social media and it really seems to have captured people's imaginations there.
8: More than animals here, what you have are birds. People are seeing all kinds of birds which they never used to see in cities like Delhi, Mumbai, Calcutta, in their backyards, in their little gardens. And they're sharing news and videos and pictures on different apps Alerting each other to bird sightings. And at least one person in Delhi told me, again, a wildlife expert, that it was a wonderful experience to wake up in the morning and where she hears early morning traffic most days, now she wakes up to bird song.
1: Sanjay Dasgupta there. It's often said that music and poetry tend to flourish in the darkest of times and it seems the current coronavirus crisis is no exception. There are now hundreds of songs about the virus online sung by people across the world from pop stars to presidents. Mike Thompson reports on the global growth of what's being called pandemic pop. I want to talk to you
8: about something serious
4: this global pandemic, coronavirus songs take all forms.
9: We can make a handshake using our feet. We can make a handshake using
7: elbows, knees. I ain't trying to catch a disease. I ain't trying to catch no virus.
4: Spanning cultures and continents. <laughs> Even heads of government are taking to song. This from former footballing legend, now president of Liberia, George Weah. spreads
3: via droplets.
6: When the president coughs or the land. Learned...
4: President Weah's song, which is getting extensive airplay, reinforces practical advice about the virus. Though after claims of government inaction, it seems many Liberians would prefer speeches to songs.
2: Some people feel like he shouldn't be doing it because he's president. They want to hear more of him talking, not singing. The other countries, the leaders are speaking to the people. He's singing.
6: Keep your hands clean by washing them frequently with soap and
4: water. But Rodney Sia, editor of Liberia's front-page African newspaper, says others feel songs are at least better than nothing.
2: Some people actually believe that corona is a joke. They don't think it's serious. Because I think part of it is that the government response has been criticized a lot on social media, on the radio. And the song, for some of the president's supporters, is a sign of redemption, that at least he's doing something musically to educate people about the, the virus. Coronavirus
4: songs that are particularly popular with youth everywhere are those that subvert the lyrics of well-known hits. Though Daniela Marchiotti, who lives with her family in Codogno, one of the first red-zone Italian towns to go under lockdown, says only weeks ago she enjoyed such songs. But the mounting death toll from this pandemic now makes laughing hard.
2: Yes, I walked
0: through the streets of Dublin and no one was near. I was moved by Bono's words. I absolutely loved it. I love the message, I love the tune, I love the words. And when I say that, we need to dance out. The pain and uh, you can't touch, but you can sing across roof rooftops. That's what we did here. That
1: report by Mike Thompson. While some countries have been looking into using drone technology to keep people apart during lockdowns, one man in New York has gained internet fame after using his drone to get together with a girl he's called Quarantine Cutie. Jeremy Cohen spotted a neighbour dancing on the rooftop across from his and decided to take a chance, documenting it all on the video platform TikTok.
3: Since I've been quarantined in my apartment for a week now, I was craving some social interaction. 2020 has been off to a terrible start, but I still needed to shoot my shot.
1: Now the pair have become the face of dating during social distancing, and Jeremy has gained more than 700,000 followers on social media. I spoke to him about when he first spotted the girl we now know is called Tori, or Roof Girl to her fans.
3: She caught my eye because it's very sad in strange times, especially in New York. And it's totally okay to feel sad, but also I think it's totally okay to feel happy. And, and that's what I saw in her, that I was immediately just attracted to her energy. And I wanted to get in touch with her. She was on the roof a little bit longer, and I went out to my balcony and waved to her. And we kind of exchanged smiles. And then I, I yelled across the street, like, hey, like, can I send you something? And that's when I quickly like, wrote my number on a piece of paper, taped it on my drone. I ran up to the roof really quickly and flew my drone across the street, landed it on her roof. She got my number and texted me.
1: And, and you went out on a date. It was a, a rather bizarre sight because you were in a plastic bubble. She was walking alongside you. Uh, you had some flowers, but you couldn't give them to her because you were in that bubble. Mm-hmm. And have you been surprised by the reaction? More than 8 million people have, have viewed uh, your video of this date.
3: My date idea was to walk around in the neighborhood, you know, safely, keeping our distance from everyone else. But we could stay kind of close because I was in a bubble. So we walked around the neighborhood and people were a combination of just straight up bewildered or just joyful or a mix of both.
1: So many people around the world seem to have loved your story. There's been such a big reaction to it. Why do you think you've had such a big response?
3: This is just a story that it makes people feel happy and the other thing i think is you know as a sports fan myself we have no sports to root for anything to root for at all right now so you could root for our relationship
1: and are you still dating
3: we've been on two dates we talk and facetime every day uh i haven't asked her to be my girlfriend but we're giving each other a shot
1: so online dating doesn't quite replace the real thing
3: I get anxiety from online dating as someone who has some insecurities of being short and also balding a little bit. So this was just my first time really shooting my shot with someone in over a year. So it's kind of crazy that it worked out. These things really happen when you least expect it.
1: Jeremy Cohen proving that lockdowns can't stop romance. And that's all from us for now, but there will be an updated version of the Global News podcast later. If you want to comment on this podcast or the topics covered in it, you can send us an email. The address is globalpodcast at bbc.co.uk. I'm Jeanette Jalil. Until next time, goodbye.